Natural death can be an extremely alarming and sudden reality in our lives. It can come when we least expect it. After my freshman year of college, it was actually after my first semester of college in 1999, January of 99, I came home for Christmas break in December and was living with my grandmother for a period of time. Am I on? I'm on. Was living with my grandmother for a period of time. And it was late one night, and I decided that I was going to go spend the evening with my father. And the roads were really snowy that night. It was late December, and I decided that I'd go ahead and, and head out before the snow got to fall too bad. So I, I left the house, drove all the way to my father's house, and stayed there. I told my grandmother before I left that I'll, I'll call later and make sure everything turned out well with her. I was over at my father's house, and I hadn't heard from my grandmother. She had worked. She worked late at a laundromat and uh, didn't, usually when she got home, she would, she would give me a phone call, and uh, I didn't hear from her. So I decided to call her, called about 7.30, no answer, called again 7.35, no answer, called 7.45, no answer, 7.50, no answer, 8 o'clock, no answer. Very strange. So I decided that I'd take a drive, drive 30 minutes all the way back through the snow, back to the house to make sure she got there okay. As I pulled up in the driveway, I opened the garage door, and as it came open, I could see her car. And I was like, great, she's home. And so I ran up the steps into the garage and then into the house. I walked into the kitchen and saw a loaf of bread on the table and saw her purse and then walked through the kitchen and walked into the kind of the dining room area and looked off to the right and saw her dog was still outside that she normally let back in. I turned and walked in the hallway, and there was my grandmother laying there in the hallway. I ran over to her, grabbed her, lifted her up. She was very, very uh, struggling to be conscious and coherent. And I started asking her questions, what happened, what happened? I don't know, I fell down, I fell down, I fell down. So I was able to get her off the ground and sit her in a chair, called the ambulance, and they came and, of course, put her on, uh, got her ready and got her in the ambulance and took off, and I got in the ambulance and drove there. And while we were driving, I was asking, what, what went on? What could have happened? He said, well, lots of things could happen. She could have had a stroke. She, something could have happened. Uh, we don't know yet. We've got to run some tests, see what, see what happens when we get there. So anyway, we got there, and it turns out that she had a massive brain aneurysm and she was in a coma by the time she got to the hospital. Before they loaded her into the ambulance, I was able to look at my grandmother one last time, who was responsible in large part for me coming to know the Lord, and tell her that I loved her and that, um, that God was with her and that she didn't, she didn't need to be afraid. But, and after that, I never spoke to her again. She died a day later. Death can sneak up on us at the strangest times. I didn't anticipate leaving that night and going to my parents and expecting not ever to really get to spend any time with my grandmother anymore. But I can only imagine that as the disciples heard Jesus talk about his death, that their level of surprise would have even exceeded my own level of surprise that night. Because the level of surprise that they experienced was a radical re-altering of everything they thought about when they thought about what it means to be the Christ, what it means to be the Messiah. Jesus, in this text, announces to his disciples that he has come to die and that his followers must do exactly the same. Now, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. As I mentioned last week, we're at a pivot point in the Gospel of Mark. Things are getting ready to take a radically different shift. Right here with this confession by Peter and Jesus' following teaching and announcement, we've reached the climax, the top of the hill at Mark. And from here on out to the rest of the end of the Gospel, it's straight for Jerusalem, straight to the cross, straight to the resurrection. 
Jesus' focus and his mission comes into really clear focus and purpose. And now he's on his way to Jerusalem, on the way to the cross. And on the way to the cross, he begins describing to his disciples the way of the cross. In other words, as he's on the way to die, he is now going to be talking to them in the next two chapters, verses the end of chapter 8 and 9 and 10, until he hits Jerusalem in chapter 11. He is going to spend time talking about what it's going to mean for these disciples to follow him as a crucified Messiah. It's going to entail suffering. It's going to entail service. It's going to entail sacrifice. So the next three weeks, God willing, we're going to talk about what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be his disciple, because this is the theme of Mark 8 to 10. Now this morning, I I just couldn't get beyond the words here at the conclusion of chapter 8. So we're just focusing on this pivot point at the end of chapter 8 and Jesus' call to his disciples. But next week, Lord willing, we'll look at 9, and the following week we'll look at chapter 10, all under this big theme of what it means to be a disciple, what it means to follow Jesus as a crucified, cross-bearing king. Here's the big idea this morning. Jesus is the king who gives his life for his people, and therefore his followers must be those who give their lives for him. That's the big idea. Jesus is the king who gives his life for his people, and therefore his followers must give their lives for him. I want to unpack that theme looking at this text with four questions. I'll go ahead and give you the questions up front. Number one, who is Jesus? And number two, why did he come? We'll look at those very briefly and, and spend most of our time on questions three and four. So who is Jesus and why did he come? And then the third question, what does he demand of those who would follow him? And question number four is, why should you be interested in signing up for that? Okay, so those are our four questions. First question, very quickly, who is Jesus? Last week we reached the watershed moment in Mark's gospel with Peter's confession of Jesus that he is the Christ. In chapter 8, verses 22 to 26, we saw the healing of the blind man and that that was a picture of Jesus opening the eyes of the disciples to recognize who he really was. Just as Jesus opened the eyes of the blind man, so he opens the eyes of the disciples to understand that he is the Christ. Matthew 16, 17, when in, in a parallel account where, this, where Matthew records this very incident, Jesus follows with the words, Flesh and blood, Peter, did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, this testimony, this saying that I am the Christ, that didn't come from you. That came from a revelation from God in your life. You recognize that in me because God opened your eyes to see it. The man we see in verse 22 is healed in two stages. This is a picture of the disciples. They do truly see Jesus, but they don't fully see him. And we see that expressed when Peter rebukes Jesus. So they see that Jesus is the Christ, but they don't exactly understand what kind of Christ Jesus is. They recognize that Jesus is the Christ, but they do not see that he is the Christ who must die. So who is Jesus according to this passage? Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one of God, the Messiah sent by God to be the Savior of the world. How is he going to do that? He's going to suffer, be rejected, die, and rise again. That's the portrait of Jesus. We don't get Jesus in the Bible without a cross. There is all, all over the world today, especially in, the Western, in our Western culture, loves Jesus, hates the cross. Downplay the cross. Jesus is a wonderful moral teacher. He's a great example to us. He's an example of loving the marginalized and those who are uh, on the outside fringes of society. But this whole blood and death and wrath and cross and all the stuff we sang about is offensive to people today. But here's the deal. We don't get Jesus without the cross. He is a cross-bearing Christ. He is a cross-bearing king. So we have to keep that at the front of who Jesus is because that's what he keeps at the front of who he is. Now, why did he come? Question two. He explains it in verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man, that was a popular designation that Jesus chose out of Daniel 7, applied it to himself, 
teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests. Not rejected by lawless people, not rejected by criminals, not rejected by the worst people possible, but rejected by humanity at its best. Rejected by the most religious. Be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. This is why Jesus explains that he came. This is the kind of Christ that he is. Jesus is teaching here that God's kingdom will indeed come. It's going to come. We see that in chapter 9, verse 1. Truly I say to you, there is some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. The kingdom of God is coming with power. But what these, and that's what these disciples were anticipating, that this Messiah who's promised in the Old Testament is going to come and overthrow Roman rule and raise the Jewish people out of poverty and affliction and establish his earthly kingdom and the government of the world is going to be on the shoulders of this Messiah. That's what they were expecting, and that's going to happen. But they didn't understand that first this kingdom comes, and this is a major theme in the Gospel of Mark, first this kingdom comes in a secret way. It comes in a quiet way before it comes in a loud way that the whole world can see. It comes in this secret, gracious way. God will triumph over his enemies in the end. But the problem is that we are all God's enemies. So if God is going to triumph over his enemies, he can do it one of two ways. He can stamp them all out. Or if he's gracious, and he is, he can save them. And that's what he's doing in the first coming of Christ. So the first coming, God graciously sends His Son to be judged in our place and call us to repentance. In the same way, Jesus is the King who will reign in victory and glory when He comes again, but first He comes to die in our place for our sins. And that's what we see here in Mark chapter 8. So we see that he's the Christ who came to suffer, die, and rise again, that we might be forgiven and brought into the kingdom of God, so that when it comes in power and glory when he returns, we won't be firmly ex executed when it happens. Question three, and here's where we'll camp for just a, a minute. What does Jesus demand of those who would follow him? Well, before we get there, Look at verse 32 in Peter's response to all of this. And he said this plainly. He spoke very openly about what he was coming to do. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. His own disciple takes him aside and says, Jesus, you've lost your mind. What in the world are you talking about? Rebuke is a strong word. It's basically getting in his face and correcting him. And he says, Jesus' response is equally forceful, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. We see here that Peter has a misunderstanding of who Jesus is and why he came. He's got this idea that the Messiah is to come in victory and glory and power, and the fact that he'd be suffered, suffer, would be rejected, be killed, that, that shows weakness. That shows defeat. That doesn't show victory. But Jesus calls Peter Satan. Now, why does he do that? Well, he gives the explanation, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but you're setting them on the things of man. There's another reason that he calls him Satan. Remember, what is, what's Satan's purpose when he first shows up in the life of Christ in the temptation, in the wilderness? It is to try to get Jesus to seize power apart from the cross. He takes Jesus to the wilderness. This is in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. Satan takes him out into the wilderness, and he offers him the kingdom. He offers them power and glory and victory, but no cross yet. You can get it all, Jesus. I'll give it all to you if you'll bow down and worship me. You won't have to go through the cross. You won't have to suffer. You won't have to be rejected. You won't have to be killed. I'll give it to you. Jesus resists that because he knows that Satan's agenda, if he can get Jesus away from the cross, is he will damn the world. If he can get Jesus off the cross. So Jesus resists that, and Peter is thinking in league with Satan here. Not intentionally. He's just 
He's setting his mind on the things of man. He looks, he's doing exactly what Satan tried to do, which is try to keep Jesus off the cross. And Jesus will have none of it. So verse 34, then Jesus begins, he's talking to Peter now, talking to the disciples. Now he looks up and calls the whole crowd that's all around him to come in. He's not, this is no more quiet Jesus anymore. This whole, if you've been following along, one of the trends that you've seen in the Gospel of Mark is how, how we, just, we just don't know a lot about Jesus. We're looking at him. He's, not reveal, he's doing a lot of things, but he's not doing a lot of teaching. He's not doing a lot of explaining about who he is and why he came. That's all done now. With Peter's confession of him as the Christ, he now stops and says, All right, here's why I came, and here's what it means to you. And he's straightforward, bold, just very clear about his call. And he gives that call in verse 34. What does Jesus demand of those who would follow him? And he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to him, said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So Jesus says three things right there, right? Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Now, what is this about? Deny yourself. We love ourselves. We love ourselves. And the Bible assumes that. Jesus assumes that. Jesus knows it. And his call to us in light of who he is as a crucified cross-bearing king he says if you're interested in being a disciple of me I want you to know that it's going to mean death to you it's going to mean denial of yourself which is the last thing we want to deny deep deep down in your heart there has to be a shift of the center of gravity in your life from concern about you to, to reckless concern about the will and kingdom of Jesus. That's exactly what he is saying. A shift of center of gravity in your life from yourself and your concerns and your plan and your pursuits to his agenda, his plan, his pursuits. Deny yourself. Death to the priority of yourself. It's no longer about you. Life is not about you. Life's about Jesus. Life's about his will, his agenda in the world. So if you want to sign up, Jesus says, with me, it's going to mean that you have to be prepared to shift the center of gravity of your life to something other than yourself. You have to take up your cross as well. Now the cross here is not, he's not saying, deny yourself, Put on a piece of jewelry and follow me. Take up your cross off your table and put it around your neck. He's saying, rather, get in the electric chair with me and die. Get on the chopping block and die. Take the lethal injection and die. Take up your cross. A cross is an instrument of execution. Everybody knew that. That's why the look on their faces when he said this, they would have said, you are certainly out of your mind. Take up your cross. Take up your place of execution as I'm going to take up my place of execution and follow me to Golgotha where I will hang there for you. Therefore, you hang there as well. You hang there. Now, does he literally mean Physical cross-taking? No. Why? Because in Luke chapter 9, he says that we're to do this daily. Take up your cross daily. So cross-bearing doesn't have, first and foremost, as its reference point, physical suffering. It has physical suffering included in it, but it's not primarily about that. Taking up our crosses means denying ourselves and following the example of Jesus' sacrificial love and service. It means laying down our agendas and surrendering everything to Him. All of it. 
Bearing a cross is every Christian's daily, conscious selection of those options which will please Christ, pain ourselves, and aim at putting ourselves progressively to death. That's what he's saying. Choosing the path where yourself, where your priorities, your plans, your agendas, your wills, your desires, all that you want is being progressively killed so that Christ might be all. Now notice several things that he says about, about this. He says that the demand of bearing a cross is universal, doesn't he? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. He must deny himself, take up his cross and follow him. This is a universal call. Jesus is saying that it's anybody who wants to follow me without exception must do this. No exceptions. It's a universal call. Walt Chantry puts it this way. It is an absolute impossibility to be a Christian without self-denial. It is an absolute impossibility to be a Christian without self-denial. Whether you live in a Christian land or in a culture hostile to God's Word, you must bear a cross. The only way to avoid the cross is to follow the world to hell. The only way to avoid the cross is to follow the world to hell. That's the only way we avoid it. We can avoid it and choose hell. That's what we get for avoiding the cross. The, the demand of bearing a cross is not only universal, it's also perpetual, right? We don't get to set it down. Take up the cross daily. I've been a Christian 30 years. Carry the cross till your death. It goes to bed with you. It wakes up with you. It's sitting right there next to your bed, welcoming you every morning. Alarm clock, death to self, death to self, death to self, death to self. You wake up with it. You pick it up. You carry it. When you're tempted to drop it, you go back to Jesus and pray for help. He will help you carry the cross. But you keep it on your shoulders. You don't let it fall. It's perpetual. Also, the demand is painful. The cross represents both inward and outward pains. Walt Chantry again says, Inward suffering must be the focus of our Lord's teaching in this passage. Our cross is not merely physical suffering. Stephen was not stoned daily. Yet, the Savior said he had a daily cross. There is a cross to bear on the best and the worst of days. It doesn't mean every day is going to be morbid. and But it does mean every day is going to be meeting self-denial, 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 self-denial on the best of days. When you're enjoying the greatest vacation, there's a cross to be born. It is a death to your priorities, to yourself, to your will, to your agenda, to your plan, and a continually su submitting of that plan to Jesus Christ and following his will, his plan, his agenda. Also, the demand is intentional. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. It's intentional. Jesus is not going to take the cross and put it on you. He's like, you take it up. You get it. You grab it, and you follow me. So it's intentional. It has to be something that we sign up for with our hearts and lives. I'm in, Jesus. Give me the cross. It's an intentional kind of thing. Finally, the demand is not only intentional, not only universal, not only perpetual, not only painful, but mortal. It's deadly. It's deadly. It ruthlessly intends to bring death to self. Death to self-importance. Death to self-satisfaction, death to self-absorption, death to self-advancement, and death to self-dependence, period. The cross stands as that. Jesus says, you want to come after me? You want to follow me? Take up your cross and do it. Now, this is not an isolated message in Jesus' teaching. It's not like he says this one place, he never says it again. I want to turn you to a couple of passages. Hold your finger here in Mark, we're going to come back. But look at me, look with me at Matthew chapter 10. Matthew's the gospel written um, before Mark, so you can just turn back 15, 20 pages and go back to Matthew 10 and look at verse 37 to 39 where Jesus continues his radical ways. Matthew 10, 
Now, folks, Jesus is not a tame lion, as C.S. Lewis said. He's not a tame lion. Verse 37. Whoever loses father, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Now, just stop there. If you love your parents more than me, you're not even worthy of me. You are unworthy to be my disciple. He goes on, though. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He doesn't say whoever loves son or daughter or loves father and mother. That's a command, by the way. More than me. More than me. More than me. You love them more than me? You love your kids more than me? If I call your kids somewhere and you won't let them go, will you let them go? More than me? More than me? You're not worthy of me. More than me. I will have it all. I will have what is most precious to you. Or you are not worthy of me. A crucified cross-bearing king demands crucified disciples. Verse 38. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Luke 14. Luke is after the Gospel of Mark. Luke 14, verse 26 and 27. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's, in other words, saying, if if they love any of them more than me, they are not worthy to be called my disciple. Verse 27, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, Cannot be my disciple. Lastly, Luke 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, Luke chapter 9, verse 57, I'll follow you wherever you go. Somebody's interested in signing up. Jesus doesn't say, Great. Come on. He says, I'm homeless, you know. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another said, another he goes, follow me. The man makes excuse. Uh, uh, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. You, I'm supposed to honor my father. I don't want to leave him. This doesn't necessarily imply that his father's dead yet. He's just saying, I want to wait until my father does die so I can give him a proper burial. That would be dishonorable. And he says, your father's dead. Let the dead bury their own dead. You follow me. Doesn't give a lot of options, does he? (laughs) 61, yet another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. I just want to say goodbye to him, Jesus. That's all. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I was reading, David Platt is a pastor in Birmingham, Alabama, and I've been recently reading his book, Radical, and he recounts a story of the first time he heard this passage preached, this, the one that we just read. And I'll, I'll read you David Platt's words. He says, The first time I heard this text preached, Luke 9, 57-62, it was from the lips of Dr. Jim Shaddix. He was my preaching professor, and I had moved to New Orleans specifically to study under him. Soon after I got there, Dr. Shaddix invited me to travel with him to an event where he was speaking. I sat in the front row in a crowd of hundreds of people, and I listened to his sermon begin. Tonight... My goal is to talk you out of following Jesus. My eyebrows shot up in amazement and confusion. What was he thinking? What was I thinking? I just moved my life to New Orleans to study under a guy who persuades people not to follow Jesus? Dr. Shaddix preached the sermon exactly as Luke 9 describes, giving potential disciples warnings about what is involved in following Jesus. 
In the end, he invited people who wanted to follow Christ to come down to the front. To my surprise, many in the crowd got up from their seats and came down. I sat there dumbfounded and began to think, okay, so this is like a preaching tactic, kind of like sanctified reverse psychology. And it works. Tell them you're going to talk them out of following Jesus and they'll respond in droves. I decided I was going to try it. The next week, I was preaching at a youth event. Taking my cue from Dr. Shaddix, I proudly stood before the the students assembled that night and announced, my goal tonight is to talk you out of following Jesus. I could see the leaders of the event raise their eyebrows in concern, but I knew what I was doing. After all, I'd been in seminary a few weeks, and I'd seen this done before. So I preached the message and then invited students who wanted to follow Christ to come forward. Apparently, I was more successful in preaching that message than Dr. Shaddix had been. Let's just say I stood at the front alone for a while until finally the leader who organized the event decided it was time for me to call it a night. For some reason, I was never invited back. Contrary to what I may have thought about Luke 9, Jesus was not using a gimmick to get more followers. He was simply and boldly making it clear from the start that if you follow him, you abandon everything, your needs, your desires, even your family. William Lane said it this way, It was the Lord's intention that those who follow him should not be detached observers of his cross work. Should not be detached observers. But people who were growing in faith and understanding through participation in his sufferings. See, get this. This path that Jesus is, is, inv- is calling us to walk is the path to knowing him. There is no other path to knowing him. Why? Because he is a king who bears a cross. We only get to know a crucified Savior through our own crucifixion, through the progressive death that we experience to ourselves. We only get to know him that way. So I want to know Jesus. I want to be a Christian. Well, this is the path because this is the Jesus that we're following. Lane concludes by saying, only in following on the way of the cross is it possible to understand Jesus himself. Only on this path is it even possible to understand Jesus himself. Well, there it is. There's the radical, and I'm not making any qualifications. I could say all the stuff it doesn't mean, but I just want it to land on you the way it landed on them and hear it again. Now, I want to spend the rest of this sermon persuading you that this life is worth it. That this life is worth it. And I've got five things I want to tell you about why you should be interested in killing yourself. Not physically, but spiritually. Dying to your plan, your agenda, your purposes, your goals, your life, to surrender it to follow this man. Now I'm going, to pers- I'm going to do my best to persuade you. Why should you follow him? Before I get to the reasons, you might think confronted with the unrelenting demands of the cross as we've been confronted with here, that we begin to think of Christian life as grim and an undesirable existence. Who would want this? I mean, this is the real world, Jesus. I remember preaching this text, not this text exactly, but something like this, uh, in California last summer, and um, having a woman come up to me afterwards and saying, what you're saying, nobody can do that. Nobody can do that. She got it. She got it totally. She understood exactly what Jesus is responding. And I said, you know where I? Yeah, you're right. But is there any other way? While mention of self-denial is essential if we're going to follow Jesus, Jesus viewed his own cross-bearing as a joyful experience, as, a, as, a, as an experience to be desired. Now, it wasn't that he shrunk from elements of the cross that struck his soul with terror. Nevertheless, he knew what he was getting into in eternity before he ever became a man as the eternal Son of God. 
coming to earth, he knew what the cross would entail. He knows God's wrath better than anyone. He knew what it was going to cost. But nevertheless, he chose it. And the Bible gives us pointers as to why he chose the cross. Hebrews 12.2 says it this way, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him. Now, what was the joy set before him? Two other texts help us with that. Philippians chapter 2 and Isaiah 53. Philippians chapter 2 says this, So that after his death, he would be exalted to the right hand of God and receive a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He knew that's what he was getting. He was going to the cross, and after that he would be resurrected, and he would ascend to the right hand of the Father and be given a name that is above every name, and that is the name of Jesus. Every knee that has ever been created on, on the body of every single human being would fall down before him and worship him as the king. He knew that joy was awaiting him. He also knew that he wouldn't be alone. Isaiah 53, the prophecy of this suffering Christ, which Peter should have known. He read his Old Testament. This idea of a Christ who would come and suffer and die and rise again was not some out-of-the-blue idea in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 is crystal clear why the suffering servant would come. He would come, lay his life down, die in our place for our sins, pay the debt that we owed for our sinning to God, rise from the dead, save a multitude of people. Isaiah puts it this way, he would see the travail, the pain of his soul, and he would be satisfied. Now, why would he be satisfied? Because his mission to save a multitude would be accomplished. So, Jesus knew that. When he signed up to take the cross, I'm going, Father. There's no other way. I will save this people. I will, in my own body, absorb your wrath for their sin. I will be raised from the dead so that they will be saved and I will be given a great name. So he went with full joy, knowing what was awaiting him on the other side. And the only lasting and fully satisfying joys for any person lie on the other side of the cross. And Jesus knew it as well. So Jesus is after a this and next world joy in calling us to our death. One commentator put it this way, when the cross is weighed in the balances, when we say, okay, I'm looking at that life, and when it's weighed in the balances with all the glorious treasures to be had through it, even the cross seems sweet. Even the cross seems sweet. And that's what Jesus' perspective was. Even though it was going to cost him immeasurable pain, separation from his Father, he looked at it and said, the rewards will be sweet, so I will do it. Now, what are the rewards? What are the things that make the cross sweet? What are the things that make this life of daily self-denial and crucifixion of ourselves to live for the purposes of this king, what are they? Well, let's begin with verse 35. And the first reason is because it's the only way that you'll go to heaven. It's the only way you'll go to heaven. Verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it. In other words, if you try to keep your life back from this cross life, save your life from this, I don't want to do that. Okay, Jesus says, you'll lose it. You'll lose it. If you don't want to do it, you'll lose it. But whoever loses his life, denies himself, takes up his cross, follows me, gives, my, give my, gives his life over to me. Jesus, I'm, I'm here to do your will. Whoever does that, We'll save it. We'll save his life. And we notice what we lose, our, we lose our lives for. We lose our lives for his sake. We're giving our lives to him and saying, Jesus, I'm created by you. I'm redeemed by you. Do with me what you want. I exist to make your name great and expand your gospel in the world. So he says, if you, if you sign up for that, it's the only way that you're going to save your life. Now, I think he's talking about both life in this world 
and life in the next world, both fullness of life here and fullness of joy in heaven. So he's not saying, he's saying both. He's saying if you choose to not follow this path, if you choose to not deny yourself, not take up your cross, not follow me, you will not only forfeit heaven, but you're going to forfeit the full humanity that you could experience here in this life. The Christian life is a paradox. To attempt to save our lives means only to lose it. A person who saves his or her life in order to satisfy desires and goals apart from God is forfeiting their life. They are forfeiting their life by trying to pursue life apart from God. Not only does that person lose the eternal life offered only to those who believe and accept Christ as Savior and follow Him as a cross-bearing Lord, but they also lose the fullness of life that is promised to them who believe in this present world. By contrast, those who willingly give their lives for the sake of Christ in the gospel actually save them. To be willing to put personal desires and life itself into God's hands means to understand that nothing that we can gain on our own in our earthly lives can compare with what we gain in Christ. We have got to believe that. When Jesus says, if you will do this, if you will daily, and I'm talking to Christians who have been bearing their cross for a long time, I'm saying keep it on your shoulders, keep walking with it. If you, if you walked into this room today not being a disciple of Jesus, I'm inviting you to pick it up, and I'm telling you here's why you should pick it up. Pick up the cross, follow him, because you will have the best human life you could ever experience, and you will get heaven in the end. It will be costly. It will be painful. It will be hard. You will be swimming upstream, but you will have a full human life. That's what Jesus promises us. But He not only promises us fullness of life, He also gives us the other side of the coin. Verse 36. What does it profit a person to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? Or... For what can a man give in return for his life? It's kind of asking these questions to draw us out. Okay, so say you got the whole world. You go to hell. What can you give in exchange for your life? You, you are going to live forever. You, as C.S. Lewis said, you have never met a mortal. There is no such thing as a non-immortal being that's a human. We are made to live forever somewhere. And Jesus is saying, so what if you get 80 years of luxury and hell for eternity? What can you give? There's no way you could get enough to make it worth it for what you're going to lose by not taking up your cross. What can a man give in return for his life? Can't give anything to get his life back. Can't give it, it can't, you can't have it again. When it's over, it's over. Paul Tripp says, To jealously hold on to my dream of what I want to accomplish, experience, and enjoy is to guarantee that I will never, ever experience true life. Instead, I will experience the slow and progressive shrinking of my soul until there is no life left. That's what people who are not bearing the cross right now are experiencing. They are experiencing the slow, progressive shrinking of their souls until there is no life left. Those transcendent joys and pleasures for which we are created are only available to us, Paul Tripp says, on the other side of our death. So the only way we're getting those pleasures, those joys, is on the other side of us dying. And calling us to death then, Christ is actually protecting us from death, isn't he? In calling us to deny ourselves, he's actually rescuing us from suicide. Shrinking your life to the size of your life is not life. Shrinking your life down to your concerns and your life and living your life is not life. Rather, it's death wearing the mask of life. 
Many people spend all their energy seeking pleasure apart from God. And Jesus says that a world of pleasure that's centered on possessions, position, power, privilege is ultimately worthless. Whatever a person has on earth is only temporary. It cannot be exchanged for their soul. If you work hard at getting what you want, you might eventually have a pleasurable life, but in the end you'll find it hollow and empty. Every person will die, even those most powerful and most wealthy, if you have not taken care to save your life for eternity with God by following Jesus on the road to the cross, then we've gained nothing and we've lost everything. No better place was this illustrated than in reading John Grisham's novel, The Testament. I didn't read the whole book. I read the first page. But the first page gave me the perfect illustration of what Jesus is is experiencing or talking about here. Now, I may have shared this. Some of you may remember this illustration. I doubt it. But if I've shared it before in multiple contexts. So if you've heard it before, just enjoy it a second time. But this is an illustration of what, it, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul. Listen to this. This is a man writing on his deathbed. This is how John Grisham begins his book. Down to the last day, even the last hour now, I'm an old man, lonely and unloved, sick and hurting and tired of living. I'm ready for the hereafter. It has to be better than this. It won't be. I own the tall glass building in which I sit, and 97% of the company housed in it. Below me and the land around it, a half mile in three directions, I own it all. And I own the other 3,000 people who work here, and the other 20,000 who do not, and I own the pipeline under the land that brings gas to the building from my fields in Texas. And I own all the utility lines that deliver electricity, and I lease the satellite that's unseen miles above by which I once barked commands to my empire flung far around the world. My assets exceed $11 billion. I own silver in Nevada and copper in Montana and coffee in Kenya and coal in Angola and rubber in Malaysia and natural gas in Texas and crude oil in Indonesia and steel in China. My company owns companies that produce electricity and make computers and build dams and print paperbacks and broadcast signals to my satellite. I have subsidiaries with divisions in more countries than anyone can find. I once owned all the appropriate toys, the yachts and jets and blondes, the homes in Europe, farms in Argentina, an island in the Pacific, thoroughbreds, even a hockey team. But I've grown too old for toys. The money is the root of my misery. I had three families, three ex-wives who bore seven children, six of whom are still alive and doing all they can to torment me. To the best of my knowledge, I fathered all seven and buried one. I would say his mother buried him. I was out of the country. I'm estranged from all the wives and all the children. They're gathering here today because I'm dying and it's time to divide the money. That's, just not, that's, not, that's not fiction. Paul Tripp says, There is no investment so poor as investment in the kingdom of self. Don't we see that illustrated right there? There is no investment so poor as investment in the kingdom of self. One last impetus to take up our cross is given in verse 38. Would you look there with me? For whoever is ashamed of me, that's, that's what causes us to not take up the cross, isn't it? Shame. What will people think? What will my family think? What will my friends think? What's it going to cost me? Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. That's how Jesus, when Jesus looks down at our world, that's what he sees. An adulterous and sinful generation. Adulterous. He sees a bunch of adulterers. Why? They've forsaken their first love. They've gone and shacked up with prostitute sin when God is offered to them. And he looks down at them and says, 
whores. The whole world is full of whores. Whoever's ashamed of me, and, and that's, that's who you're getting flack from. Keep that in mind. When you take up the cross and follow Jesus, you're getting flack from an adulterous and sinful generation. It's not that bad. They, all they can do is kill you. That's it. And Jesus means that to be encouraging in Matthew 10. <laughs> Whoever's ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed even when he comes in the glory of his Father and with his holy angels. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back in glory with the holy angels and all the world's going to see it. And there I am. How did you respond to him? Now, I know there's some sensitive deer sheep here. And I want to alleviate a potential burden that you would put on yourself in hearing this passage. By shame here, Jesus is not talking about you didn't speak up one time when you should have. Okay? That is, there's a difference. We've all done that, haven't we? Peter did that. Okay? Peter denied the Lord three times in the face of a middle school girl. I mean, he's not a paragon of courage. A middle school girl came to him and said, you one of his followers? <laughs> I'm not one of his followers. I don't even know who the guy is. What it means to be ashamed of Jesus is to reject him from his rightful place in this position in your life. It is to prefer the world to what he has to offer. It is to functionally de deny Christ that center of gravity that he's meant to have in your life. It's to offer the rule of your life, of your thoughts, of your desires to something other than Christ. It means to reject Christ's offer of life and seek to find life somewhere else. Jesus is saying, deny me your rightful place in your life, and I will deny you a rightful place in my kingdom. That's what he, that's what he means by... If you're ashamed of me, he's like, if you deny me a rightful place in your life as this king, then I will deny you a place in my kingdom. You will have no part in it. You will not be in the new heavens and the new earth. You will not be in the kingdom of God when it comes in power and glory at my return. Now, I need to close, but I want to close with perhaps the most helpful text for me in these days. Because every every... As I said, we're supposed to take up our crosses daily. And you know what my, my fear is, is this. This is the lie that I believe, that I'm tempted to believe. And, I know, and I'm sure you're made of the same stuff as me, so you think the same way. I think this. I think, sure, I'll get all the joy in heaven. But it's going to be absolutely brutal here. You think that? I think that. And I, and I was reading in Luke 18 this week, and it blew it all away. Because Jesus makes an absolutely persuasive promise where I, I said in my heart before him again, I said, Jesus, whatever it costs, I'm yours. I give myself to you again. I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Because he spoke this to me from his, from his word in Luke 18. So let's go to Luke 18 very briefly. Because this is a promise to me that just trumps all promises. Luke eighteen twenty nine. Actually, verse twenty eight. This is on the heels of the account with the rich young ruler, where the where the where the rich young ruler walks away, and Peter's getting worried. Verse twenty eight. Peter said, "Jesus, see, we've we've left our homes and we followed you. We've left it. We've left everything. What do you got for us? Give us something to comfort us. We've we've made a hard choice here." And Jesus responds and says, Peter, get off your self-pity. You're not losing a thing by following me. Not a thing. Listen, verse 29. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God 
who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. You get the emphasis? That's what sets us free to take for, take the cross now, because Jesus stands at the on that stands right next to that cross. Says, "Take that up. I will give you so much more in this time than you would ever have. Take it up, and I'll give you eternal life forever. Take it." And Jesus looks at Peter and says, "Quit being self pity. Go die." You know, in his loving, gracious, tender way. But he gives us that kind of fire and steel in our backbone, saying, "Look." You, no one's left houses or brothers or sisters or brothers or anything for my sake that I won't repay a hundredfold. So quit with your self-pity saying, oh, it's just too hard. Jesus holds out so many promises. And just like C.S. Lewis, I know I've quoted from him. I don't know why he keeps coming to my mind. But C.S. Lewis says, when we consider all these promises that Jesus gives us, it seems that he finds our desires not too strong but too weak. That's exactly what, that's what Jesus says. Our desire is too weak for happiness. Our desire is too weak for life, too weak for joy, because we settle when He offers 10,000 times more in the cross. And we say, no, I'm all right. Family's good enough. It's good enough. And Jesus says, oh, we're half-hearted creatures. We are so half-hearted. We have a holiday at the sea offered to us, and we'd rather wallow in mud pies. I'm offering you everything, and you're settling. Don't settle. Take it. And this is grace. Do you think Stephen regrets the stoning? What what do you think he's experiencing right now? you think he regrets taking up that cross? Do you think Jesus regrets Gethsemane? Where he suffered sweat like great drops of blood falling to the ground, trembling for fear of the wrath of God. Do you think that he regrets that now? No. When Stephen walks in his resurrected body on the new heavens and the new earth, how light of affliction that stoning will be. I just got killed with stones. This hard call is actually a call of grace. Your Lord knows that you love you and have a wonderful plan for your life. He knows that, and He wants to rescue from that, you from that. He wants to rescue you from your love of your wonderful suicidal plan. So He will not leave you to yourself. He knows that we all tend to look at life and see death. He knows that we all tend to look at death and say, Oh, that's where life is, where death is. He knows that we tend to do that. He knows that we will hold with clenched fists to what is not ours and refuse to open our hands to what is His gift. But what could be more horrible than to get everything I want and miss the one thing I was made for? What could be more horrible than that? To have everything and miss the one thing that you were created for. Fellowship with God. So then, Jesus' call to death is really an offer to life beyond your wildest dreams. A life of joy, satisfaction, purpose, and pleasure that this sadly broken world could never deliver to you in its finest moment. Christ's call is a call of rescue. In asking you to deny yourself and follow Him, He is giving to you what you could never earn or achieve on your own. You will not find it in marriage. You will not find it in parenting. You will not find it in theological knowledge. You will not find it in accumulating possessions. You will not find it in in the esteem of your friends. You will only find it in Him. No matter if you spent your life where Jonathan and Tina just spent their last ten days. And that was a great vacation. But you wouldn't find it there. Ask the employees, they know it. Christ offers you what the physical creation cannot offer. The all-surpassing pleasure of knowing Him. And this is the world's best prize. The best prize that the world has to give us talking about the physical, the world that we live in. It is only when you deny yourself, take up your cross, follow your Lord, that you begin to experience the transcendent humanity for which you're created. So there's a cross right in front of you this morning. 
take it up. Take it up and take Jesus to the bank on his promises. Let's pray. Father, I can, I can labor to make the cross clear. Lord, this, this text preaches itself. All I've been doing is making comments on what, Lord Jesus, you yourself have already said. And only you, though, can make this compelling. Only you can open our eyes so that we see how gracious this invitation is. This is a graciously hard saying. And we pray that we would believe it and for the rest of our lives take up our cross and follow you. We ask it in your name. Amen.